Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. God's grace coming to us in Jesus Christ. As we sing that song that God has said that our judgment is death because of our sin without Christ, but in the grace of Jesus Christ, he brings to us salvation. We hear these themes in our text today in James chapter 1. We'll be studying together verses 13 and 14 and 15, but we'll read from James 1 beginning in verse 12. The Word of God says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Living God, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our only supreme concern. This we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want to show you today from this text, the play that sin runs against us so that through the wisdom of God's word, we can win and not be defeated. There's no sports right now, which is like heartbreaking to some people, to others of us, it doesn't make much difference. Very strange. I turned on the TV the other day and they were playing some World Series baseball game or some Super Bowl football game from the late 90s. They were just replaying it. And I was like, well, I didn't care what happened in this game when the outcome was still uncertain and it was really happening. So why on earth would I care now enough to watch it? It's just not my, this is not my thing. But if you remember, uh, a few years back in the NFL, there was big controversy because coaching staffs were caught secretly videotaping the in-game play calling. And even more recently, in Major League Baseball, uh, several teams were indicted in this uh, in in this crisis where they, where they stole the signals that the catcher was throwing to the pitcher so that they could signal to their batter what the next pitch was going to be. I want to take this text this morning because I think that one of the things that James is trying to do, and certainly the Spirit of God is doing throughout the balance of the New Testament, is he's showing us the play that sin is planning to run against us. And if we can see that play ahead of time, then maybe the next time we're in it, we won't be deceived by it and defeated by it, but we will begin to be able to win this fight against sin. And that's what I want to see in this text. James shows us the plan of God in verses 2 through 12. And James shows us the plan of sin in verses 13 through 16. 
That is, in verses 2 through 12, we already saw that external troubles and trials uh, have a good purpose to improve our faith and to mature us in Christ. But here we see in verses 13 through 16 that temptations toward evil have a devilish intent, have a diabolical or evil intent in order to destroy and bring us to death. That is, 13 through 15 say temptations are sent by our own flesh or by Satan in order to make us stumble. But verses 2 through 12 say that trials and troubles are sent by God in order to make Christians stand strong. And James is very clear in verse 13 that God is not to be blamed for sinful temptation. (coughs) That is what God does in the trials and troubles of verses 2 through 12. God aims at our maturity. But then in the temptations that come from our own sin in verses 13 through 16, the aim there is toward our misery. If you look here at verses 13 through 18, could show you just to show you how this lays out uh, four different natures. Verse 13, the nature of temptation. Verse 14, we will see, is the nature of man, our desires. Uh, Verses 15 and 16 is the nature of sin. And then verses 17 and 18 show us the nature of God that he gives every good and perfect gift, and that his own nature is unchanging. But here specifically in 14 and 15, we see the the play that Satan runs against us, the nature of man and the nature of sin and temptation. It's really not Satan and the world so much as we'll see it's our own inner flesh and our inner sin that causes so much trouble. Another way to kind of break out this text by way of outline, uh, the, the great old writer John Owen has pages and pages on this text in Sin and Temptation. And John Owen uh, helpfully, I think, maps a human anatomy, as it were, a spiritual anatomy of, human, of the human soul, and he maps it onto this text. So uh, taking Owen's terms here in, uh, in verse 14, when it says, each person is tempted when he is lured, being lured, Owen puts the word the mind on that in our thoughts and our imaginations. And then verse 13 says, lured and enticed, enticed by our own desires. And Owen puts the word on that, the affections, the affections. And next, keep going. It says in verse 15, then desire, (coughs) when it has conceived, and over that word conceived, Owen puts the human will, that movement of the will. And then it says in verse 15, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And that sin, Owen puts actions, words, deeds. The will leads to those actions and words and deeds. And finally, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. And death is that spiritual enslavement. And ultimately, that spiritual death But today, we really can just look at these three key words, that word in verse 14, lured, and that second word in verse 14, enticed, and then that uh, by his own desire, lured and enticed by his own desire. 
To understand those words, it's simple to understand that that first term, that when, when we're tempted, we're lured. That uh, word was used in the original Greek language for a baited uh, trap in the wilderness that lured the unsuspecting animal in. The animal found the bait in that trap to be irresistible, and so the animal was lured toward it. Very similar, the second word, and <coughs> enticed by his own desire. That word enticed in the original is of bait that's being uh, dangled in front of a fish. It was a fisherman's term in Koine Greek. Lured and enticed. That first word means to be dragged off, and it gets to that dominating, almost enslaving power of our thoughts and our wants as we are lured towards sin. And the second one, enticed, is that magnetic attraction of desire. So what's similar? In both of these terms, what happens is we see the bait. We see the offer of anticipated pleasure. But what we get, verse 15, when sin's fully grown, it brings forth death. We see the bait, but we always, in the end, get the hook. All we see initially is the anticipated pleasure, but all we get eventually is the unanticipated pain. And this is why I want you to see the play that sin tries to make on us so that especially the next time you encounter temptation in the sin that so easily besets you, you can win against that play. I want you to see the whole thing. Especially I want you to see where it ends. We're lured and enticed because the desire promises pleasure, but when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. All we see initially is that offer of pleasure, but we always end where it ends, which is in pain. Would you get this? The fool only sees right now. The wise person sees through to the end. Would you get that? That's such an important principle. That principle is throughout the book of Proverbs. You know, the book of Proverbs was written initially for teenagers. I hope we have uh, teenagers watching this sermon, members of our youth ministry, listening and following along in Scripture. But though it was originally written for teenagers, it applies to all of us. And what it says is, the fool sees right now, but the wise person sees through to the end. One of the amazing things that, this verse, that these verses are saying is this. We make choices, either to sin or not to sin, either to take the bait or not to take it. We make choices. So to speak, we're free to choose. But most certainly, we are not free to choose the consequences of our choice. Those consequences are written into the universe by God Almighty, and we don't make them vary. Those consequences, if you don't see the play that sin is running against you, those consequences will be different than you think they will be because we get deceived by our desires and we don't see the play that sin is running against us. The consequences of sin, according to verse 15, are determined by the eternal purpose and law of God. That is to say, church, that is to say, please know this, there is a moral reality in the universe. 
that all the desires and all the whining and all the wishing of all the men and women who have ever lived can never, ever undo. There's a law of sowing and reaping that cannot be set aside by our fancies and our desires and our wishes. The fool sees right now. The wise person sees through to the end because he or she has come to know the moral fabric of the universe that God has created. But you see, both of those two first ter terms, lured and enticed, are married in this third term, desire. Lured and enticed by his own desire. This word desire, epithumia in the original language, is also the word that's translated lust in our New Testament. For us, in English, lust generally means some sort of a sexual desire in, in contemporary usage. But biblically, this word epithumia means any strong, compelling desire. And many times, it can be a righteous and a good and a holy compelling desire. To desire God, to desire holiness, to desire the salvation of the nations. But it could also mean a strong desire towards sin. But certainly what this is saying is that the human soul desires. The human spirit is like a sponge, and it's always thirsty to take something in. The human soul is hungry, and it's always looking for something to fill it. The human imagination is a womb. And within the imagination are the imagined images or the imagined feelings and thoughts and desires of what we think we'll get. And our anticipation of what our choice will lead to is all bundled under deception unless we see the reality of the play that our sinful desires are running against us. When we yield to temptation, it's because we imagine that we would like to enjoy the bait. We never see the hook. But if we see the play ahead of time and see it through to the end, we can encounter it with holy wisdom. That is, the true source of sinful temptation is named right there by his own desire. It's clearly barred against a God tempting us to evil in verse 13, but the, the true culprit is listed right there in verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. D. Edmund Hebert, the commentator, said, uh, temptation has its source not in the outer lure, but in the inner lust. God is not to be blamed. The world is not to be blamed. For the trouble lies within, in the combustible material each person carries around within himself. Let me show you this not only from James, but a couple of other places. First, let's turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, and we'll read from verse 18 down through verse 25. Tell me if you don't identify with this. Romans 7, beginning in verse 18. He says, Therefore I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do. This is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, the evil lies close at hand. For, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law 
waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. We feel that. That our flesh, we certainly as those who belong to God with our mind and with our heart, we have a desire to obey him. But we know there's a flesh within us, sort of a, a not yet fully transformed humanness, which has wrong desires and wrong motivations and, and, and sinfully inappropriate appetites. And it's constantly dragging us down. We know that feeling. Jesus answered this same question in Matthew chapter 15. From Romans 7, turn over to Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 through 20. Matthew chapter 15, verse 10. Jesus called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know what the Pharisees were offended when they heard that saying? And Jesus answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the pit. But Peter said to him, Explain your saying to us. And Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. This defiles a person. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus says it comes from the heart. Paul calls it the flesh in Romans 7. James calls it the corrupt desires within. Especially in that Matthew 15 passage, there's this sort of uh, pharisaical sweeping of the outside. As if, and you tell me, have not Christian churches constantly, constantly made this same colossal error? Ah, if we could only get the right sort of moral environment and put all the bad people and all the bad stuff over here and all the good people and all the good stuff over here. And if we could just get some sort of conservative control over things, then everything would be fixed. And Jesus says, and the church needs to hear, that is not going to fix things because the problem is within. I defy you uh, to disagree with the fact that after you got quarantined and told to stay at home and you could no longer go out and get anything, you didn't quit sinning. I don't even think the frequency of your sin decreased. It very well may have increased. The problem is not out in the world. The problem is within. Our unrestrained appetites our egotistical desire to shove aside every good and perfect gift that God has given us and to reach for the forbidden fruit. 
No understanding of the human heart and of the human condition is in any way even remotely sane without this understanding of human sin. Our inbred internal desire to do wrong. This is humanity. This is where we're at. James in James 1 verse 14 calls it desire. This human desiring and lust. The temptation comes from within. Remember, he said in verses 1 through 12, trial and trouble come from without, and they can lead us to maturity. But temptation, he says in verses 14 and 15, comes from within, within the will of the sinner. And so perhaps just to take a couple of minutes and give a brief but hopefully informative and even that it will spark your imagination a little bit aside into Christology. Christ was genuinely tempted and Jesus Christ was utterly and completely sinless. Taking these categories in James really helps us to understand that. Jesus Christ faced genuine, uh, a genuine temptation. He faced real temptation, but there never stirred within the human heart of Jesus any inappropriate or disordered desires, for he was utterly and completely without sin. You see, for us, we go into temptation and some external thing may be in front of us, and our hearts are already rooting for the other team. Our desires are already corrupted. But Jesus was more like Adam before the fall. Before Adam reached for that forbidden fruit, there wasn't a traitor within him yet. When Jesus was here, he had strong desires, epithumia, but in Jesus, that strong desire was never sinful in its orientation or its desire. It was never compromised. Jesus was born without sin. See, when, when our desires are according to the creational order, that is um, sex within the covenant of marriage and a man and a woman, uh, hunger and thirst. These things are all licit within God's creational order. And each of these desires can be fulfilled in a God-honoring way. We can act on those desires in ways that honor and please God. But for us, because our, because our very nature and our very desire has been compromised... We tend to act on those things out of proportion and in disobedient ways. Jesus never had a disordered desire from within. It's not so much the object of the uh, it's not so much the object without that holds the guilt. It's the disoriented desires within. Temptations that inner dragging toward what's wrong in a distorted and, and disordered way. We have this. Jesus didn't. And we need the help of Jesus in order to overcome our corrupted and fallen desires. Now let's see the process that, that um, 
sin plays against us. Let's see this sequence and this process. Twice now, James has given us a sequence. You know, the writing of James can appear to be random, but I'm telling you, the more I read it, the more I see it's cyclical and Hebraic, but it's far from random. There are, there are all these connections within the circles. Uh, so in 2 through 4, in verses 2 through 4, James explained a process whereby trouble leads to faith being made steadfast, and faith being made steadfast leads to completion and mature uh, Christ-like character. Now, in verses 14 and 15, we have the sort of diabolical doppelganger of that process. Instead of leading to life, it leads to death. Instead of leading to full-grown Christian maturity, it leads to this disordered desire that gives birth to death and slavery. But the point is, James is saying that sin is not just an act in isolation. Sin is the result of a process. And I want you to see the play that sin runs against you so that the next time you're in it, you can defeat it. To learn and resist. I want to give you the four-step process of sin. And I, I, I've made it easy for you because I know while you're listening to this, your cat is probably climbing on the back of your sofa and your kids are throwing Legos at you and it can be hard to, to follow. So I give you four points. And even though I wasn't given the spiritual gift of outlining, all four points start with the same letter. So it's easy for you. Just as an aside, about half the people I've talked to have said, it's way easier listening to your preaching online at home because there's like no distractions. And exactly the other half of you have been like, it's impossible to listen to your preaching at home. The only time that I can get it is when I'm there live at church, just proving that there's no uh, one-size-fits-all answer to anything because we're all different. But I'm trying to make this easy to follow, so there's four points. They all start with the same uh, letter. Desire, deception, disobedience, death. Desire, deception, disobedience, death. First, comes desire. The mental pull that comes from a misguided imagination. First comes desire, the mental pull that comes from a misguided mind or a disoriented imagination. Here's what I'm trying to say, or I think one of the things that James is trying to say. We want what we want because we think what we think. And we think what we think because we want what we want. In other words, all human reasoning is motivated reasoning. There's no neutrality. Our wanting always plays with our reasoning. We want what we want because we think what we think, and we think what we think because we want what we want. All of our reasoning is motivated reasoning. And so desire is not just the wanting, but desire is the wishing and thinking that leads to the wanting. It is so often the case that the wish fathers the thought. Our desires drive our thinking. All reasoning is motivated reasoning in the sense that, that the wish drives the thought. We need to desire the joy and presence and blessing of God. We need to think God's 
thoughts, we need to think rightly of God, verses 17 and 18, that he's good, that he's perfect, that he's unchanging in the light of his love toward us. And if we think those God-honoring thoughts, then our desires will follow in that train. We want to desire God. The remedy here in this first place is to, is to fan the flames of those desires for God. Listen, here's the verse to memorize this week. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Since then you've been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. When it says that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, that means the next time you're, you're urging and tempted towards sin, you're to consider that Jesus broke out of the grave, ascended into heaven, and is now waiting for the moment when all the sinful things in the world will be crushed under his feet. This is your Savior, so why would you rebel against him? Cultivate those desires for Jesus. The believer must learn how to deliberately and frequently set his or her affection on things above. What will it take for you to set your affection on things above rather than the things that are on the earth? You figure that out and you do it. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We want to increase our desires for God. This will save us from disordered desires. First is desire. Second, deception. Deception. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Sin so entices the affections that we're lured and enticed by our desires. We see the bait, but not the hook. The whole operation hinges on deception. The problem is that, right, I have met the enemy, and he is us. The problem is we wish that it took Satan, the father of lies, in order to deceive us, but our own hearts deceive us. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote that without faith in the blood of Jesus, human reason is a clever harlot. I think he's right. Our own reasoning will deceive us unless the blood of Jesus purifies our very thoughts and our very reasonings. Because the corruption of our hearts and the disordered nature of our desires is actually at the root of our irrationality. And reason seduces the heart away from where the heart is supposed to be glad in God and glad in the, in the rightness of walking in obedience to God. You know how it is. You know how it is. When we see something we desire, we begin to make up reasons. That's called rationalization. We begin to make up reasons why we deserve that thing, why God's laws against that thing aren't as serious or as strict as other people say they are. The very fact that we want something creates the mental slope that slides us to reason toward why we should get that thing right now, which is just to tell you again 
that your mind does not so much dwell in reality as in what you wish reality was so that you could get what you want. Desire drives our own ability to deceive ourselves. And we need the Spirit of God to rescue us from that. John Owen, in that killer book, Sin and Temptation, says of deception, sin has well over a thousand wiles to ruin us in deception. Sin has a thousand ways to hide the ruin of sin. Sin will use hopes of future pardon to hide the present danger of sin. Sin will use plans of future repentance in order to hide the present danger of sin. Sin hath a thousand wiles which cannot be recounted by the human mind. The mind is drawn away by deception. How we need to watch and pray that we enter not into temptation. And then watch and pray that when we enter into temptation, the very Spirit of God will transform our mind by God's power so that we will no longer be deceived. How do we win this fight? Well, Romans 12, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 28, verse 26, he that trusts in his own heart is a fool. But the one who walks wisely, he shall dwell securely. Fight deception with the clarity of God's word. Fight deception by asking the Spirit of God to transform your thinking. Your thinking is conformed to this world. Every day it is. You have to ask the Spirit of God to, to transform your thinking and your very vision to see. Well, those are the big two, the first two, that desire and that deception. In the second two, we have disobedience and death. Disobedience, this is where the will gets what it wants. And we're free to choose. But we're certainly not free to choose the consequences of our choice. But when we move towards sin, we make that move to take the steps to commit the sin. What do we do here? How do we rescue ourselves here? Well, we can't rescue ourselves without God's help. But how do we, how do we beat this, this, this disobedience? I tell you, Christian, you need to begin to believe that disobedience is so disastrous that you will take desperate steps to eliminate it. Christian, you need to begin to believe that disobedience is so disastrous that you'll take desperate steps to avoid it. Don't you think that's one of the things that Jesus meant in Matthew 5 when he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it from you. Far better to go through this little vapor of a life, a little bit deformed, than to have your whole body cast into hell. Romans 13, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make 
No provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Make no provision for the flesh. Cut off that hand. Just make no provision for the flesh. Disobedience is so disastrous that I am willing to take desperate steps in order to avoid it. By the Spirit of God, take sin as seriously as Jesus took it for you. And finally, that last one is death. And there's not much to say here. Death is death. I guess the thing to say here is that this gives me the opportunity uh, to bring it back to the death of Christ in our place. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I tell you, I never tire of preaching the gospel. I'll preach the gospel to a room full of people. I'll preach the gospel to a camera, hoping that various places people are hearing it. I'll preach the gospel in my sleep. I'll preach the gospel while I'm awake. Jesus Christ dying in our, this is it. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God says sin leads to death. And then God says, I will die for you. If you have sinned and you have sinned, a death is inevitable. But if you have sinned, your death is not inevitable. Because by the grace and mercy of God, there is one who can die in your place. This is the good news of the gospel. The only reason to preach, somebody told me many years ago, is to humble sinners and exalt the Savior. The only reason to preach is to convict sinners and compel them to the Savior. This, we, we ask the Spirit of God to do this in every sermon. What good would it do to humble sinners if we did not compel them to come to the Savior? The only reason to, to explicate the, the shame and the horror of sin is because Jesus took the punishment for our sin in our place. Condemned, he stood. God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, church, the gospel is this. God showed his love for us in that he didn't say, hey, here's a four-point outline of how to avoid sin. And once you have successfully avoided sin, uh, then I'll love you and die for you. This is the gospel, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Church, this is gloriously good news. Let's believe it, confess it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our Savior Jesus, the very Son of God, and Holy Spirit of God, present to help us, would you, in these moments, would you, humble sinners, and exalt the Savior? Would you convict of sin 
And would you compel us toward the Savior in all of his mercy and in all of his love. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.